the middle Then it started to hook just a wee wee bit And that's when my caddy lost sight of it That little white pellet has never been found to this day what is up and welcome back to the Golf Public Podcast. Today we have a very special episode for you. Uh, the 1956 match popularized by the book The Match. The Day the Game of Golf Changed Forever by Mark Frost. And we'll be taking a lot of our research from that book. Um, if you've been following along with the podcast series, we started with The Greatest Game Ever Played by Mark Frost during last year's U.S. Open at Brookline, Massachusetts, and we ended up following Eddie Lowry's story all the way till 1956. If you remember Eddie Lowry, he was the 10-year-old caddy for Francis We Met when Francis defeated Harry Varden as an amateur to win the U.S. Open, and Eddie Lowry would go on to become a millionaire. He'd move across the country to San Francisco, start off with a couple Lincoln dealerships, and created quite the empire. He even served on the executive committee of the United States Golf Association, commonly known as the USGA. It's truly an interesting story. The day the game of golf changed forever. Exciting title, but did it really change the game of golf forever, or was it more of a sign of the changing of times? That's what we're going to get into today. When you think of the match, you probably think of, uh, in current events, the Capital One, the match, you know, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, Tiger, Phil Mickelson, Bryson DeChambeau in a format designed for charity, television. We got the players mic'd up. You put a celebrity athlete with a professional, and it's all good fun and games. Whereas for this match, obviously there was no television broadcast. Um, Some fans did eventually congregate, but everything we really know about the matches, what was said, people's reactions, um, pretty much word of mouth, witness accounts. So one of the main storylines here is going to be that we had a match with two of the world's greatest amateurs and two of the world's greatest professional golfers at the time, and it was competitive. If you think about that today, two amateurs, no matter how good they are versus the two greatest professionals on the PGA Tour, wouldn't stand a chance. And that's partially because this was, there wasn't as much money in golf as there is now today, obviously. For example, in 1941, Ben Hogan played 39 tournaments. He finished lower than fifth place exactly once, and he took home for his entire year $18,000, which adjust that to inflation, probably about 250000 That's chump change compared to what we're dealing with today. I mean, with Live Golf offering out $100 million contracts, the Players' Championship had a purse of $20 million this year. So, a lot more money. It was very tough to be a touring pro, especially if you weren't. Ben Hogan was the greatest, one of the greatest of his time, and he was still only taking home the equivalent of $250,000. So, in those days, being an amateur was oftentimes much easier. There was still sort of the... Uh, the stigma of the amateur game being more for royalty was fading away or upper class. However, a lot of amateur golfers or all amateur golfers would have a full daytime job. Maybe they'd be in business or 
in our story, selling cars, but they were able to play golf at a high level, compete in the majors, compete against the tour professionals. That today will probably never happen again, and that's what this story is sort of the marking point where the highly qualified amateur, until a guy like Tiger Woods comes on many years later, as he's on his trajectory to be the greatest golfer of all time. But that's what this match is. It signifies the end of the great amateur. And the hype that surrounded this story, this match, really propelled professional golf, people's excitement for the game to the next level. So our story begins with a man by the name of Bing Crosby who I wasn't familiar with. I had to actually call my grandparents to dive into this character, but he runs in the same crew as Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Dick Hames. But anywho, he was a big musician, played a big role in the early movies of the 1930s to 1960s, and he was an avid golfer. He was said to be as low as a two handicap and he decided to hold a golf tournament for amateurs and professionals and at the time as we've mentioned professionals weren't making a whole lot of money but Bing Crosby would put up ten thousand dollars for the tournament winner which was think about throwing ten thousand dollars from 1940 into 2022 it's a lot of money and you'd pair up an amateur with a professional so we move to the Monterey Peninsula and if you think about the Monterey Peninsula, first courses that come to mind, you got Pebble Beach, Cypress Point, and Spyglass Hill. That should make you think of the AT&T Celebrity Pro-Am Classic, which is what the Bing Crosby tournament was the preface for. And that is the setting of where Eddie Lowry an avid annual attendee of the Bing Crosby clam bake would make his, we'll say prophecy, that his two amateurs could beat any golfer in the country. So he's at a dinner at a man by the name of George Coleman's house. George Coleman was a big Texas oil man, and he would always have a dinner the Tuesday before the clam bake started. Eddie had, let's just say a few drinks, and anybody that would listen to him, he would tell them, I've got the two best golfers, Ken Venturi and Harvey Ward. He said, Ken and Harvey, I don't care who you put up against them. In a four-ball match, they would beat anybody. Well, Eddie Lowry was known for having the gift of gab and hustle. He was not afraid to talk, show off. That didn't always rub people the right way. George Coleman, the host of the dinner, took the bait, and he had a, he had had enough of Eddie's gab for one night, so he called him on his bet. He said, "I'll take you up on it. Let me make a couple phone calls." It just so happened Byron Nelson was at the dinner. He was in on George's account, and he called up Ben Hogan, who was at the Monterey Peninsula for the clam bake. And Ben was more of a reserved person. He was. Interested in playing, but didn't want a big crowd. George said, that's fine. We'll make sure nobody's there. So to this day, nobody knows what the bet between Eddie and George was. I've seen stories that say it was $50,000. I've seen stories that say it got all the way down to $50 once the match started on the first tee. Nobody will truly know, but it seemed like what 
ever was up for steak was uh, pretty grave to each person. They were George and Eddie were all in on this bet. George came back and announced to everybody in the room we are going to play Ken and Harvey versus Byron and Ben Hogan tomorrow at 11 a.m. at Pebble Beach. You might be thinking, I thought this was Cypress Point. Well, in fact, it was. George had announced to everybody there that Pebble Beach, 11 a.m., when it was actually Cypress Point at 10 a.m., to try to divert the crowds as much as possible. So you had three golfers lined up to go. Eddie called Ken Venturi immediately, and Ken was thrilled. He'd always wanted to play against Byron and Ben, the two greatest professionals at the time. Ken and Byron actually had a relationship prior to this match during his early days of amateur events. Ken had received lessons from Byron Nelson on behalf of Eddie Lowry, had connected the two, and Byron took interest in Ken's game and career, but they had never played directly against each other. The only person that was not yet confirmed to attend this private match was Harvey Ward. Nobody had heard from him, couldn't get a hold of him. These were the days prior to cell phones, but Eddie guaranteed that Harvey would be at the match the next day. And it would just so happen the very next day, Eddie, George, Byron, Ben, and Ken all showed up on time, much to the surprise of the employees at Cypress Point. They had no idea what was going on. They assumed it was a practice round, but quickly they caught on that something was in the air. But still nobody had heard from or seen Harvey Ward. At 9.45, Ken walked over to Eddie Lowry and said, where's Harvey? And he said, don't worry, he'll be here. Did you speak to him or you leave him a message? I spoke to him, Eddie says. Seven o'clock sharp, woke his ass up right out of bed. And Ken responded and said, are you sure he's even been to bed? Eddie said, don't worry, he'll be here. So the five men gathered on the tee, prepared to begin the round. They marked their balls, put tees in their pockets. Ben Hogan lit up a cigarette. And at five minutes to ten, a red Mercury Montclair came roaring <laughs> along the highway into the parking lot and screeched to a halt. And in classic Harvey notion, he walked up to the first tee and said, Hey, boys, is this a private game or can anybody play? With that, everybody had a laugh, and the bet was discussed between the players. They decided on a $100 Nassau, and Harvey looked at Eddie Lowry and said, What kind of action you guys got going on today? Are you betting the whole house? Eddie responded with, You worry about your own bet, Harvey. We'll worry about ours. And just like that, the match was off. Real quick, I want to get into Cypress Point. I've never been fortunate enough myself to visit the Monterey Peninsula, but I hear it's absolutely incredibly beautiful. Cypress Point was designed by the great Alistair McKenzie. You may have heard that name before with his little-known course called Augusta National. He's quoted as saying, He doesn't suppose there's anywhere in the world that has such a glorious combination of rocky coast, sand dunes, pine woods, and cypress trees. Um, the course starts off in coastal dunes and then works its way back into the Del Monte Forest and reemerges to the rocky coastline to create one of, if not the greatest, back nine stretches 
in the history of golf. So I just want to run through the four players just in case we're not familiar with all of them. Hopefully you're familiar with Ben Hogan. 71 professional wins, nine major championships, inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. Um, played professionally from 1938 to 1959. Had all the accomplishments I just listed above, including serving two years in the Army Air Force during World War II. So take two years out of that 90. 1938 to 1959 stretch, and he's still accomplished 71 professional wins, nine major championships. Um, and then, of course, infamously in 1949, Ben Hogan and his wife were traveling down a foggy road when a Greyhound bus attempting to switch lanes collided headfirst with Ben Hogan's car. Instinctively, he jumped over to the passenger seat to protect his wife, and had he not done that, he would have most likely died. The steering wheel and the column went straight back into his seat. His entire body was pretty crushed, and it's an absolute miracle he was able to come back and play golf until 1959. That whole story is, it could be its own podcast itself. Um, however, just wanted to highlight this is his return portion of his career after his devastating accident, but still nonetheless one of the greatest golfers in the world at the time. You should know Byron Nelson. If you don't, he had 52 professional wins, five majors, also in the World Golf Hall of Fame, uh, most notable for 11 consecutive tournament wins, and he won a total of 18 in that same year in 1945. He actually retired at 34 to become a rancher was uh, becoming a rancher was always his dream and he grinded it out on the PGA Tour to make enough money to where he could buy his own ranch and he would sporadically return into golf um, for instance in 1955 the year before this match he finished top 10 in that year's Masters and then he served as a commentator for certain events going on and Ben and Byron actually knew each other pretty well growing up. They were both from Texas, and they played against each other growing up in various tournaments. They had a great friendship at the beginning of their careers, professional golfers. They would actually travel to events with their wives, who were great friends. Um, and at the beginning, Byron was uh, would grind on the range with Ben. They'd hit balls for hours and hours until their hands bled. And then Byron had his success, especially in that 1945 season, and kind of took a step off the the accelerator as far as practicing. He felt like he had learned everything he could and could cruise to being the best player on tour without putting in the endless hours. And that didn't quite sit right with Ben. He made a couple weird comments, and um, they somewhat grew apart. They always remained cordial friends, but um, not nearly as close as they once were. Ben needed to go into his own dark place to essentially amass the motivation and that he needed to just close out the world, practice on his golf game, and then, of course, right after Byron Nelson retired at 34 is really when Ben Hogan's career lifted off. And that's just sort of how Ben Hogan was. He was very to himself, would love to beat balls on the range and then just go through his process during a tournament and he won quite a few of them. So those are your two professionals. Um, then you have Ken Venturi and Harvey Ward. Ken Venturi was actually 
studied under Byron Nelson. He was the San Francisco City champion in 1950. Probably most notable victory is his U.S. Open in 1964, a few years after this match. Finished second in the Masters in 1956, the same year as our current setting, and he uh, would eventually turn pro shortly after that Masters and go on to win 14 professional events. And then post his professional career, he served as a color commentator for CBS Golf for 35 years. Um, Harvey Ward was probably the least known of the four to me. He sort of got on the national attention scale when he won the North-South Amateur Championship as a senior at UNC. He's also known for being a close friend of Bobby Jones. Um, Bobby Jones kind of took him under his wing and influenced him to travel over to Prestwick in 1952 where he won the British Amateur Champion. He was always the low amateur at the Masters, 1953, 1954, 1955, and the 1955 low amateur at the U.S. Open. And then that same year, 1955, he won the U.S. Amateur. And then the year after that, 1956, won the U.S. Amateur again. Unfortunately, in 1957, Harvey lost his amateur status. Controversy arised when Eddie incorrectly claimed income tax deductions for the money he was spending to sponsor Harvey Ward. Essentially, Eddie was paying for Harvey's travel to numerous amateur tournaments. Eddie and Harvey both tried to explain that these were business loans and that Harvey intended to pay back the money for the travel expenses during his amateur golf career and eventually this decision by the USJ was reversed in 1958. By that Harvey was kind of scorned by the USGA. He ended up becoming a pretty well-renowned golf pro in North Carolina and taught the likes of many famous golfers, one in particular Payne Stewart. But just to give you some quick background, to essentially show you that these were the two best amateurs at the time and the two best professional golfers at the time. Although the professional golfers were probably ending towards their playing career, they could still compete with anybody and beat most everybody. So starting off with hole number one at Cypress Point, it was a par four. Pretty much a handshake for the, the crew here. All four came away with pars. There was a little banter, Harvey was just getting caught up with what all was going on, who was paying what money, what the bet was. And um, Harvey did struggle to make par, but everybody else pretty easy, clean par. Um, hole two was a par five. And the notable story here is Eddie Lowry walked up to Ken Venturi on the fairway of number two and essentially said, what the hell's wrong with Harvey? And Ken said, he'll be fine. And he got maybe two hours of sleep a night, but this is not his first time being in such a situation. Let him get some fresh air and some swings under his belt. You know, the other three players had done a full warm-up, range session, putting, stretching, this, that, and the other. But that was never Harvey's M.O. We're guessing Harvey had two hours of sleep, but Ken didn't seem worried. And on that very same hole, Harvey uh, misses the green on his approach shot, leaving it all up to Ken Venturi to sink a 10-foot birdie. Both him and Byron... Nelson had struck their approach shots to 10 feet. Ken drills his birdie. 
Ben Hogan just barely misses his second birdie putt in a row. And then Byron Nelson, as legend has it, looked over at Eddie Lowry, winked, and then sunk his 10-foot birdie putt. So all square through two. Number three was a... Number three is a par three, 156 yards. Harvey hit a pretty conservative, safe shot about 30 or so feet away from the pin. And then Ken attempted to be a little bit more aggressive, but overcooked a draw. And Byron Nelson stole the hole with an approach shot that was about three feet from the flagstick. A tap-in birdie. Ken's chip. And then... Harvey's long, aggressive birdie putt did not find the hole, and the pros all of a sudden are up one through three. Notable here to say that Ben Hogan missed his third birdie putt in a row. Couldn't figure out the greens at this point in the match. Hole number four. You got the pros up one. You got a four and ten yard par four. Ben Hogan lipped out for yet a fourth birdie putt. Another lip out, but the highlight here, Ken... Venturi birdies from 20 feet after smoking a 5-iron pin high. Hole number 5 is where we see Harvey Ward show up to the contest on a par 5, hit a 4-wood, and then missed his 10-foot eagle putt, tap in birdie. Thankfully for the professionals, Byron was already in for an early birdie, and Ben, seeing that Byron was in for birdie, didn't putt his 12-foot putt. As he's walking off the green, Eddie Lowry goes, what do you want me to put you down for there, Ben? Birdie? And he said, nope, put me down for a five. With that being said, we move on to the sixth hole, all square. The sixth hole finds us on a par five, still in the woods here at Cypress Point. And although Hogan had yet to make a birdie, Ken and Harvey noticed that his limp as he walked to the tee of the sixth hole was gone. You know, he had a heavily bandaged leg from his traumatic injury in 1949. And um, the sixth is the highest hole on the course. And it led to a, another Ken Venturi and Byron Nelson birdie, as well as a Hogan Tappan birdie, where he just nearly missed an eagle. Brings you to Byron and Ken, four under through six carrying the way but it was quite evident after this birdie that Hogan was starting to warm up number seven proves that even more Hogan stuck a shot that was three feet on the par three number seven the rest of the players made par Hogan taps in for birdie and the professionals take a one-up lead on eight Ken Venturi fires back with a birdie to bring the match back to all square Ken is now five under through eight the ninth hole takes you out of the woods and back to the top of the dunes. In the ninth hole, we see Ben Hogan and Harvey Ward, both birdie here, signaling their arrive to this birdie fest of a party. As um, Harvey Ward drilled his putt on the number ninth hole to finish the front nine, Byron and Ben had not spoken much until this point in the match. But as they walked off the ninth green, Ben Hogan looks over to... Byron and says, looks like we've got our hands full today. And Byron responds, you can bet on that. Also something interesting to note here, that at this time, about 50 or so people had joined. A lot of the caddies that worked at Cypress Point 
and asked if they could stick around, plus some other people playing on the course that day decided to follow. Um, essentially, people were starting to catch on with what was going on. At this point, you had 50. Remember, there's no cell phones back then, so you couldn't text your friends. This was all word of mouth. There might have been a lot of phone calls and conversations between the golf courses around, but word was starting to get out. And so we move on to the back nine, starting off on hole number 10, which is a short uphill par 5, 475 yards. And here is our game-changing moment from Ben Hogan, who had started to heat up and would only continue. So from 85 yards out, he was using a wedge he refers to as the equalizer. One hop and stop, popped in for eagle. Byron goes crazy. The growing crowd around him roars. Not to mention this is the first smile we see here from Ben all morning long. He even goes as far to look over at Ken Venturi and give him a wink as he picks up his divot. The momentum swings there, and the pros are up one. 11 turns back to the sea with a 436-yard par 4, where everybody took a breather and went away with a par. On the 12th, Ken Venturi made his sixth birdie of the day, and Ken's birdie was matched by Ben Hogan's, who had now scored under par on five of the last seven holes. So Mr. Equalizer himself is catching fire. By the 13th, they noticed the crowd had yet doubled in size again. Ben Hogan makes another birdie that comes to a total of six holes out of the last eight under par. But the amateurs are saved by a great putt from Harvey Ward to keep the match at pros one up. The 14th, yet another breather for the group as all left with a par. Um, the 15th is a par three and we find Ben Hogan continuing to heat up as he hits a 9-iron to 2 feet. Byron follows with another great shot 8 feet from the pin, only to be shown up by Ken Venturi, who sticks one inside of Ben Hogan. I'm not sure how that's possible for a tap-in bird. Um, you know, I look at these 2 feet, 8 feet, and then a tap-in bird. I don't know how much of this is lore or legend, but it would be pretty incredible to watch. So the unique part of Cypress Point is the back-to-back -back par threes. You've got the 15th and the 16th, which the 16th hole at Cypress Point, to many, is the greatest hole in golf. A 222-yard across rough water, elevated to a rocky green, and we find Ben Hogan pulling driver, for which he never did, especially on the 16th. He generally took a four iron, played it out there safe, but today was different. Ben Hogan traditionally avoids risk, plays the analytics, the smart shot, but he knew he was going to need a little something extra, and his risk paid off. He had a 30-foot birdie putt, let his partner go right at it, where Byron follows up his own Byron Nelson driver to six feet. And yet again, Harvey answers. Corks one to inside of Byron's, and Harvey and Byron both birdie. Pros one up with two to go. 
The 17th puts the amateurs in a sticky situation, one down with two to go. And what a better hole to have than the 17th at Cypress Point. The hole acts like a plateau. Some might say a runway back to the mainland, back to the clubhouse. The tee is slightly higher than the 16th. And as the crow flies, players can see the flag about 300 yards away. However, the safe play is to take the left route, which makes the whole play about 400 yards. Ben Hogan tees off first, shapes a hard fade that powers into the rough. Byron follows with the similar shot, but just slightly longer. Harvey goes next, takes an aggressive line, challenges the rocks, but he was rewarded with an even better result, less than 100 yards from the green. Ken seeing Harvey safe after being so aggressive, decides to play a draw and goes even past Harvey. So if you got your amateurs in two great positions, the gallery's swarming them at this point, following their every move. They walk to their balls. Hogan stops by his ball and tosses his cigarette down the rocks below. He's essentially hanging on a cliff there. That's how close it came. Thank God the rough was there. Hogan being in a tough spot on the rough decides to play it safe, hits the center of the green, an easy, surefire par. Byron nodding in acceptance. Again, they didn't really say a whole lot of words. They knew each other's body language. It was 110 yards out, ripped a wedge that went past the hole, stopped and spun back to about seven feet with a great-looking attempt at birdie. Again, looked over at Ben, and Ben tipped his hat as if to say, Nice shot, but certainly no words. Nearly seconds after Byron hit his wedge to seven feet, Harvey was ready to rip. He had watched Byron's ball land and then quickly took his swing. It was clear that he was in a rhythm and ready to go. Drills his wedge. Same shot, but inside Byron's to about five feet. Ken, knowing that his partner has a great look at birdie. He can be a little bit more aggressive. He sees the shot and hits it too well. He's probably about a 90, probably about 90 yards away from the green. He hits it exactly where he was looking, however, with too much speed on it. Hits the mound and skirts past the hole about 15 feet. This led to Ben Hogan putting first. They could tell by the way he was walking around the green. The rocky walk, the long extended walk at Cypress Point had done some damage and left him fatigued by the way he was walking around looking at the green. He had a lengthy putt for Bird, which would lip out. Ken Venturi, 15-footer, lips out, which leaves Byron and Harvey. Byron next. Byron goes to get into his putting stance and then steps back. Something in Ken's putt confused him. And he sat there for a second, re-looking at the line, which seemed uncommon for someone like Byron Nelson. But sure enough, got back into his stance and banged in a birdie, which put all the pressure on Harvey. If Harvey did not sink his birdie putt, the match was over. Everybody went silent. You could hear the ocean breeze. Harvey was quick to his putt, slightly hesitated over the ball, and banged in his birdie. Which leads us into the final hole, hole 18, 
with the pros one up. Byron has caught fire yet again. Ben Hogan looks to be fatigued, but never count out Ben. And Harvey and Ken are playing perfect partner golf when one gets in trouble. The other picks him up. Whoever goes first opens the door for the second to be more aggressive. The gallery was massive, depending on who you ask. Some say hundreds, others say thousands. For our story, we'll go with thousands. And to think all these people had stumbled upon such an incredible stage. And if you weren't at Monterey Peninsula, you would have no idea. However, the stage was set, and the infamous match goes to the 18th hole. Now, the 18th hole at Cypress is quite possibly the perfect hole for the ending of our match. Um, on most of the holes at Cypress, Alistair McKenzie allows for bailout areas. There's a, an aggressive shot you can take. There is a bailout area if you want. However, on the 18th, this is the one main hole where Alistair McKenzie says you have to hit it here. Par 4, dogleg right. You've got bunkers and an array of cypress trees that guard the right-hand side before it doglegs up the hill, back up right. It'll be the steepest approach shot um, the players have faced all day. The one place you have to hit is um, to the left of the first initial row of trees. It's the only way to reach the green in two, but anything too far left brings in towering pines. So the first to tee off is Ben Hogan, perfectly places a three wood. Byron follows, same suit, a three wood. It was three yards to the left of Ben Hogan's. And even that small of a miss brought those pine trees I mentioned into play. For the amateurs, Harvey teed off first with a four wood and he hit a beauty that split the difference between Ben and Byron's ball, the perfect position. And then Ken finishes with a ball that nearly lands right on top of Ben Hogan's. At this point, the back of the green on 18 is lined with spectators. The parking lot was full. And it's said that Ben Hogan noticed the gallery for the first time, although it, all those people had been there for at least the last five holes and that was the one thing Ben Hogan didn't want in this match, was a bunch of people watching, but word had gotten out, and here they were. So Byron took the first shot, made it around the pines, but landed on the front edge of the green. Harvey went next and landed just in front of Byron on the green for a 25-foot birdie putt, and then Ken hit a soaring 8-iron to about 12 feet, but Ben Hogan... The Man of Steel himself followed Ken with an 8-iron that landed just inside, about 10 feet. Byron lags for a guaranteed par, and then Harvey gives his long putt a go that scoots just past the hole. He walks up to his ball and smacks it like a hockey stick off the green, half-joking, half-serious, and the crowd erupts in laughter. Then the amateur's last hope comes down to Ken Venturi, who had... An absolute slider. The putt itself would slide about two feet. And he took a while, looked at the putt, got into his stance, remembered to loosen his grip in pressure situations, something that Byron Nelson had taught him years ago. The ball rolled for what felt like a lifetime, and then finally dropped in the side door for birdie. Obviously the crowd goes nuts. 
Byron looks over to Ben Hogan and says, All right, you know what to do. Knock it in. And then Ben jokingly says, He's not about to tie a couple of damn amateurs. Turns around and winks at Ken and Harvey. There's no hesitation in Ben Hogan's stroke. It's just another putt for him. Goes through his routine, pulls up, and bangs it. Crushing the amateur's hopes to tie the world's greatest. This resulted in Ken and Harvey's first loss as a team in four years, yet they were happy in defeat, as ultimately was Eddie. They proved that these two amateurs could hold their own against not only the greatest of that time, but quite possibly two of the greatest to ever play the game of golf. And um, just to touch on how impressive this round was, these scorecards are a little bit contested. If you remember, Ben Hogan took a par on a hole where he had a 12-foot putt because the hole had already been decided. Even with that, Ben tied his own Cypress Point course record with a 63. Ken Venturi, a 65. Byron Nelson, a 67. And Harvey, even after his slow start, carded a 67 as well. The pros netted a 58. Amateurs netted a 59. He had 27 birdies and that one eagle, the 85-yard hole out from Ben Hogan that really changed the momentum of the game. According to the caddy master at the time, he thought that there was 5,000 people that eventually followed the match and were watching on the 18th hole. Another thing to note, the players had a bet between themselves. Ken and Harvey pulled out their wallets, and Ben and Byron refused. And the Eddie Lowry-George Coleman bet, no one knows for sure what happened. Rumor has it that it was such an incredible match, they decided that money couldn't hamper the beautiful array of golf that they had just witnessed, but we will never know for sure. The players took off their hats, waved to the crowds, and then went to eat lunch. Byron had a lemonade, Harvey and Ben Hogan, both a scotch, Ken Venturi a beer, and they all expressed how incredible a match they had just played. Ken Venturi says, One more hole and I think we would have had you, Ben, and Ben responded, That's why we play 18. But he did say, Ben Hogan, That's as hard as I can remember playing, and I honestly never wanted the match to end. I wanted to give a quote here from the author, Mark Frost. In an interview, he said, The importance of this match, why he wrote the book. It marks the great divide between the end of the period when pros and amateurs played the game as relative equals. In the beginning of the modern era, which has been thoroughly dominated by professionals and increasingly by market forces that have transformed it for better or worse into a billion-dollar industry. And that's the story here, is this is the last period where amateurs were on the same playing field level. We all root for the amateurs and the majors. Whenever you see one at the top of the leaderboard on a Thursday, it's just the the amount of money that has gone into the game, and now more than ever with Live Golf and whatever happens between Live and the PGA Tour, the money has, as Mark Frost said, for better or worse, transformed the game. The following year in 1957, Ken Venturi would go pro, and that same year he became the PGA Tour Rookie of the Year. Um, we touched on it earlier, but Harvey lost his amateur status in 1957 the next year. That decision by the USGA was overturned in 1958. However, Harvey never truly sought 
recognition in his amateur status in tournaments going forward. Ben Hogan's playing career, his injuries would eventually catch up to him, and in 1960 he saw his last professional round at the 1960 Open at Cherry Hill. Byron joined ABC as their lead golf commentator in 1963. And Byron happened to be on the call for Ken Venturi's 1964 U.S. Open victory at Congressional Country Club in Washington, D.C. In 2012, the PGA Tour honored Ken Venturi with a remake of the infamous match. You had the new or the old guard, Davis Love and Freddie Couples versus the new guard, Bubba Watson and Ricky Fowler. Um, it was hosted by Arnold Palmer, Jim Nance, and President George W. Bush. At the last minute, Freddie Couples pulled out due to a hip slash back injury and was replaced by Nick Watney. Similar to the original match, the old guard won, beat the newbies 2-1. and one. It was an exciting match and an incredible day to honor Ken Venturi, who would eventually give 30 years of his life to commentating on golf for CBS. And that's where we're going to leave this story, incredible story. I had heard about the match really after I read The Greatest Game Ever Played by Mark Frost and had watched the movie The Greatest Game Ever Played, seeing that Eddie Lowry had become a millionaire, and a quick Google search would tell you that he helped assemble the greatest match golf has ever seen. So I had to dive into that. This is an incredible story in my opinion. Got to get to the Monterey Peninsula at some point to see this course. And that's where we're going to leave it for this episode. We will be back shortly. Stay tuned, and I appreciate you listening and learning a little bit more about the history of our game. It went straight down the middle Where it wound up is a river